All right, well, hey, go ahead and turn to Psalm 20. We're continuing our series. It's your first uh, week with us. We have been uh, going through a series in the Psalms uh, through the summer. It's called Christ in the Psalms. And in our, in our, the big idea behind that is that we believe that every page of Scripture speaks something of Christ and leads to Christ. And so we, uh, we wanted to see how Christ really showed himself through the Psalms. So that's what we've been doing uh, since June. So go ahead and turn to Psalm 20. So here's a question that I'm going to start our time out with this morning, and it's this. What is your go-to? Right? That's a phrase you hear a lot, man. What's, what's your go-to? What's my go-to? What, what would help you the most? Has anybody ever asked you that? I love it when somebody asks me that. Dude, what would help you the most right now? It's like the greatest thing somebody can ever ask me, right? Um, what, what goes through your mind when I, when I ask those questions? Like, what would help you, and, and what's your go-to? Um, because, you know, here's the situation, here's the reality, unless you, uh, one of you at least here, are, are actually God incarnate, which none of you are, uh, you're, you're all facing a challenge, right? We're all facing some sort of challenge. There's something that's causing you to ask, what do I do? What direction should I go? What approach should I take? What answer do I give? What, what decision do I make here? There, there's something in your life, I'm just going to bank on that. You know, I think it's from some special word from God that told me each of you individual are thinking one of those things. But I think it's safe to say I can bank on the fact that we're all asking. We have something in our lives of which one of those questions would uh, apply to it. Um, and so what goes with that is this, man, is what do we consider to be our fallback plan? What do you consider to be your fallback plan? I have a lot of conversations with people where it comes to that. Well, you know, it's good. I'm going to be good here because my fallback is this. I find myself saying that. Well, you know, if it all explodes... You know, we, I got my fallback here. Um, and really what that's asking is this, is more, more specifically, is uh, what do you believe the battles of your life will be best won by or best won with? That's a question that we have to think about because there's certain things in that that we default to that we're going to see as we dive into Psalm 20. You know, there's a saying in motorsports that says you need to slow down to go faster. You need to slow down to go faster. And what that means is that there's more to going fast than just stepping on the gas pedal, all right? There's, a, there's accelerator, you know, control, uh, you know, there's braking techniques, there's cornering strategies. In reality, you know, engines don't really win races. Drivers win races. That's who wins the race. A, a fast engine is important, but it's not how a driver actually goes faster. And if that was the case, anyone here could win Daytona if you just had a fast enough car, right? And I know some of you think that's true, but that's because you're deluded. Um, now, look, I'm not trying to give you a theology of NASCAR. Frankly, I'm not even a NASCAR guy. It was just the best thing I got for this right here, all right? Just using an illustration to point to the kind of faulty thinking that we apply to life that's like this, right? We think the solution for us when we hit challenges, is to power through, right? That's kind of a default for us. We think if we're facing obstacles, we need to power through and that we're probably in the wrong place. Like we're someplace that we shouldn't be. So, no, whatever. Let's go NASCAR again. So that's like a guy racing in the the Daytona 500, right? Uh, You know, kind of wondering as he's going around the track why there's all these cars around him zooming by. And, but that's a default for us in the Christian life is when we find ourselves facing challenges and we go, man, I got to get through this as fast as I can. And the other thought is, why am I even here? 
I shouldn't even be here. There's not supposed to be all these challenges and all these obstacles that I'm facing. And this is where I'm telling you guys, having a good theology or belief, that's what theology means, a good belief about sin and fallenness is, is important for us. It's important that we have that because God's word is not being obscure. It's not being clever when the apostle Peter tells us that we should not be surprised by trials. We should not be surprised when hard things invade our life. We should not be surprised by oppressive people that come into our lives. We should not be surprised by corrupt systems. We shouldn't be surprised by getting bullied at school. That shouldn't surprise you. We shouldn't be surprised when we get sick when we're otherwise healthy. It shouldn't surprise us because all those areas find their roots in our fallenness. And that's why the Bible is clear about expectations. It wants to know that in this world, we are going to face some obstacles. We're going to face battles. We're going to face trouble. The Bible would be lying if it didn't say that. And you know it would be lying if it didn't say that because all of you have been subjected to those types of challenges in your life. You know what the Bible doesn't say? You know what the Bible never says? It never says to try and power through. It never tells us just to power through all of the obstacles and all the challenges. It tells us something actually so counter to that, which is our, 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 our natural draw, that only someone who knows God is, is even going to understand what that means. And it's this, it's this, it's that prayer and faith are our weapons. Prayer and faith is what God has given us to fight both life's seen and unseen battles. The things we can see and the things we can't see. So look, what this tells us is that the, the strange thing, all right, about the Christian life is that it's strange. The Christian life is strange. God calls us to do that which contradicts our natural tendencies, right? Because what did I just say a minute ago? Your tendency when you hit things that you don't understand, that feel uncomfortable, that are big challenges, that you want to get through them as quick as you can, God actually gives us a different route through. He likes to flush the assumptions we have, which is what I just said. That's an assumption. I should just get through this. I shouldn't even be in this. But God likes to flush our natural assumptions down the toilet. He's gracious like that. He's merciful like that. God operates counterintuitively to us many times. And, and Psalm, Psalm shows us this as a nation prepares for battle. So I'm just going to dive right into Psalm 20. This is a Psalm of David. This is a prayer that David would have written for his people to pray for him as his army prepared to go out to battle. And this is what it says, 20 verse 1, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. This is the people praying for the king. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your Petitions. Let's stop right there for a second. Because what we see here is the nation of Israel praying for their king as, and, the, and the army as they prepare to battle. And what we see is, is, is how the, the pleading and, and, and the, the supplication, which is offering a, 
uh, which is coming before the Lord and saying, I-, I need you to do this. Will you do this? Will you be the God that we know you to be? And will you help our king? Because if you help our king, you're helping us. If you answer the prayer of the king, you're answering our prayers. So really, really what they say here is he, they say, may God answer, answer the king, protect the king. Help the king, support the king, remember the king, regard and fulfill everything the king asks you. God, do this for our king. Verse 1, it's, Lord, hear the king's prayer. Our prayer is that you would hear his prayer. Give him the protection that you gave to his forefather, Jacob. He needs that too. Lord, send him supernatural help from your sanctuary. The way it says that in verse two, help him from your sanctuary. He needs supernatural help. He needs you to descend down and give him that help that only you can give him. Don't forget, they say, our king's faithfulness. We have a king that's been faithful to you. He has offered right sacrifices to you. They say in verse three, don't forget that. Don't forget the faithfulness of our king because the heart of our king, he's saying there in verse four, is to glorify you. Our king wants nothing more than to exalt your name. So please fulfill that desire of our king. Give us a victory celebration. He's saying when you look in verse 5. Let us be able to come to the end of this and have a victory celebration. We're able to set up banners. We're able to shout for joy over your salvation. So that's what the people are coming to as the nation of Israel is preparing for the battle that is ahead. And what's interesting is that this is what they did. Just let that soak in. Of all the things the people could have been doing to help the army, right, to help the king, this is what the king has them do. He says, I'm just going to write out a prayer for you, and every time before we, like, have to dive out there with the armies, this is kind of what I want you to get about doing. This is your task. This is your job. You can imagine saying, man, there must be something more we can do here, David. Like, I get that you want us to pray, but man, I want to get my hands dirty. Like, I want to do this thing. You know, there must be something. I mean, you need me to like scrub down some chariots and some, some horses. There must be some tactile things that I need to get about here because that's going to be more helpful. David goes, you know, just, just pray. And in fact, I'm going to write how you should pray. And that's what he does. And David's eventually going to point out the futility that relying on human resources actually brings. Let me say something before we go on, as this relates to us right now, okay? Um, And it's this. It is more important that you pray for your leaders than whether you voted for them or not. All right, I'll say it again because nobody said anything. It is more important that you pray for your leaders than whether you voted for them or not. That's biblical. That's biblical right there. What all of our leaders need in our current climate, all right, let's just make it practical. Let's apply it to our lives right now. What all of our leaders need is for their hearts to be transformed. That's what our leaders need. They need their hearts to be transformed by the power of the gospel. And God creates that change through the prayers of those who have already been changed by the gospel. That would be us. Can God not change the hearts of our leaders? Can he not do that? He changed yours. He changed some of yours. And don't think that your heart wasn't harder than our future president's heart. Because it might have been. 
Does God have the ability and the power to do that? Yeah, we see that through Scripture. All we know is that God has the power to do it and that he calls us to pray for our leaders in the same way that we see the nation of Israel praying for their king. First Timothy tells us this, all right? It says, this is Paul talking to Timothy. He says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, all right? So not just kings, but for all of us, for everybody. And then he says this, for kings and all who are in high positions, right? So kids, you got to like pray for your teachers and your, your principals too. That's, I, that's kind of a bummer, but that's like what he's laying out for us right now. And he says this, why? This is what he says, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, right? Godly and dignified in every way. And so when I get on Twitter and Facebook, I'm, what's great is like I can see this all happening, right? Everybody leading a quiet and peaceful life in a very dignified way because we're all praying for our leaders and everything's cool, right? That's, what's, that's what it's encouraging about it. But this is what he says, right? This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So he says, pray for our leaders so that you can lead a peaceful and quiet, godly and dignified life because this is actually what pleases God. So as the people of David come before the Lord to pray for their king, this was something that would have pleased God to hear those prayers and to answer those prayers. Because when we pray, this is what's happening, all right? When we pray, we are asking God to be God. That's what you're doing when you're praying, to do all that only God is able to do. That's what the Israelites are doing right here. Because God needed to be their go-to. God needs to be our go-to, right? Because he's not the one who's needy. We are. That's why we pray to him. That's why we go before him. I mean, we don't pray to God because he has unlimited resources either, but because he is the unlimited resource. That's why we go to God. And when we don't pray, when we don't pray, it's like screaming out of the driveway into a blizzard without your headlights on. That's what it's like. It's like a blizzard's coming down. It's four in the morning. It's pitch black. Garage door goes out and you go screaming out of that icy driveway without your headlights on. That's what it's like. It doesn't matter if you have all-wheel drive, brother. The fact is, is that what good is that going to do if you can't see anything when you hit the road, right? Prayer is like that. Prayer is like the headlights on your car. We turn them on before we go. That's what we're seeing here in Psalm 20 because we can't see. We have to acknowledge and we have to understand. We actually have to believe that we can't see. So even before you pray, there's a humbling thing that goes on in you. It says, I'm praying because even though I think I can see, the reality is I can't because I don't know how God may act in this. So Israel prayed that God would hear the prayers of their king and save them from their enemies. But then as we get into verse 6, David speaks to a more ultimate deliverance. See, when you go through the Old Testament, what you read a lot about is Israel fighting these wars and, and getting delivered. But what all of that is actually pointing to, especially in the Psalms, is the more ultimate deliverance that we get to be a part of, right? It's in verse 6. Let's read it. 
This is David speaking now, and he says, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Let's stop there for one second. So the psalm switches to David speaking now, who assures the people that God will hear the prayer of the king. So he's saying, you prayed, God's going to hear it, don't sweat it. Because what's happening right now is that this is pointing way beyond David's present thought, which is that God is hearing us, he's going to save his anointed, he's going to deliver us from the hand of the enemy. Because God's, what he's saying here is that God's ultimate anointed one, right there in verse 6, was actually Jesus, the future son of King David. This would be God's ultimate answer to the people's prayer and one that can only come from the throne room of heaven. What is true and ultimate salvation for the people of Israel and for the people of the United States of America? It's King Jesus who came to live, suffer, die, rise, and reign forever. That's ultimate, ultimate salvation. And man, there's just truth and there's perspective here as we face our own futures differently than the people of Israel, but the same in the fact that we have things in front of us that are like barricades in our life. And here's what it's saying. If God answered the prayers of his anointed, he will answer the prayers of those who pray to his anointed, right? So in other words, if God saved and raised his anointed, which for us is Jesus Christ, his anointed, the future son of David, he will save those who put their trust in his anointed. You see, this points to Christ because ultimately Christ was going to save his son and that everybody that put their trust in his son would be saved. There's an ultimate deliverance here at play that we need to understand and that we need to be grateful for and we need to see becoming like sort of you know, a technicolor before our eye. That's an old school term. I'm sorry. That's all I got. I like watching old movies, right? With it. Never mind. So what David was praying for right here was for both the seen and the unseen because his faith was anchored in something far deeper than he had eyes to see. And so the, one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, is our faith anchored in Jesus? Is our faith anchored in Jesus, the anointed son of David? who God delivered from death. For David, there was no other protection here. There was no other protection, no other way to victory, no other help available. Everything else was common. Look what it says as we read verse 20. It says, some trust in chariots and some in horses. He says, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. And then the psalm switches back to the people and they say, O oh Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. David says, my only line of defense. I just want everybody to know, all of you guys with the weapons and all of you guys at home wondering if we're going to be able to claim victory in this battle. I want you guys all to know that our only line of defense is the name of the Lord. Because earthly defenses collapse. And you know, David would have seen this firsthand, right? He would have seen this firsthand many times, just like you, just like you when you've seen your defenses collapse, just like you when you've seen those things that you hold so tightly to like unravel like a ball of yarn. You've all seen that happen. David had seen that happen. Something you thought was fail-proof until it runs into an iceberg, Titanic, and starts sinking, right? That's common. 
When you go to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah speaks to the same thing. In verse uh, chapter 31, he says this. Isaiah says to the people, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, right? But do not look to the Holy One of Israel of consult to consult the Lord. So, so Isaiah says, Woe to you if you're depending on all these little like rinky-dink weapons that God's given you and some horses that he made to carry you through and to be your first line of defense. Isaiah is saying, woe. He didn't say, you know, it's kind of a bummer if you, you kind of start thinking that way. He said, woe to you. He said, you are in trouble, Buster. That's what he's saying right there. Woe to you. But then you say, all right, because I know what you're thinking right now. Not providentially, I'm just guessing. But what you're saying right now is, well, come on. Didn't David use weapons? Yeah. Yeah, God, God gave David tools. They had weapons. But nay, David knew his tools were not responsible for his victories. Well, that's a tough thing to start like working out in our heads, isn't it? David had the tools. He had the men who were trained with the tools. But he also somehow knew that it had nothing to do with the victory. Right? Well, then why the tools then? Why the tools? Well, because God works through the tools and the weapons he provides. But the most effective weapon that we see here from the beginning that David was laying out for his people were their knees. That was their most effective tool as they bowed before God in prayer and asked God to act and be the deliverance and be the salvation. How easy would it have been for David to see his army as his greatest strength? I mean, I don't know that he didn't. You know, I don't know if homeboy here was like struggling with like the idea of that. Because I'm telling you right now, I'm going to struggle with that. I'm going to look to those things where I, where I think, man, those are the fallbacks. Those are the go-tos. Those are the strengths. I'm a healthy guy. I got a couple of bucks in the bank. The family's strong. The job's secure. The car runs. The house has homeowner's insurance. How easy would it have been for David to see his army at his greatest strength? And you've got to think about that in your own life. And when you start thinking about worst-case scenarios, and I'm telling you, that's what we do, man, unless you are just the most positive dude in the room. We all think about worst-case scenarios, right? And when that happens to you, what's the first thing your mind snaps to? What does it snap to? What we need is a faith like David's which was the maturity to see the futility of putting your faith in collapsible weapons. Because that's what was going on right here. But man, it's hard, isn't it? It's hard. Really, Ronnie, it's hard. That's all you got? I mean, that was the, that was the 30 hours of study this week. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard, right? We have a hard time trusting what we can't see. Were the people of Israel praying for something that they had, they had been given some future prophetic vision for? No. It's hard to trust God for what we can't see. But God calls us to something, again, like we said in the beginning, counterintuitive, and that's called faith. He calls us to faith, to trust in a God we can't see. That's why it's strange for us. Jesus once told his disciple Thomas 
after he had risen from the dead and he appeared to some of his disciples, he told his boy Thomas, he said, look, man, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In John 20, remember Thomas? They call him Doubting Thomas. Poor guy. We're going to get up to heaven and Thomas is going to go, do not say that word. Just call me. The name is Thomas. Do not say Doubting Thomas. I will strike you down. You know, he won't be able to do that, but I'm just saying. But Thomas is a guy who was like, man, I, I don't know if this is Jesus. I don't know if he's risen from the dead. I, I got to have some proof. I know he was on a cross, but most guys, when they die on a cross, they, they, don't, they don't come back to tell about it, right? So Jesus appears to him. He feels the nail prints in his hands and his feet and his side where he was stabbed with a sword. And Thomas goes, my Lord, my God. And Jesus said, good, good. You believe that's good. But he said, blessed are those who believe without seeing. Why? Why is that? What are they blessed with? What are you blessed with by, by believing without seeing? With, with faith. That's the blessing. You're blessed with faith. Faith is the unseen hope and assurance that we will be rescued, that we have been rescued. That's faith. It's believing that. And what God does is he has this amazing habit of crushing the seen and the unseen things in our lives because that is what builds our faith. Not seeing any possibilities and then boom, along comes possibility, right? You guys, have, you guys all have stories about that. I've talked to many of you who have stories like that. I, just, man, I couldn't see how this was all going to work out. And I, man, this was a really hard season of my life and you know, I, I didn't know what the answer was, and we had hit roadblock after roadblock. And somehow, man, as I look back, I can see how God worked through that as a way to build my faith. This is how God displays his power and his might. It's how God displays his care and his love by crushing what we think we know, by giving us the ability to have our faith become bigger and wider, and stronger. Remember Gideon? I mean, we went through Gideon around the beginning of the year. Remember Gideon? Just this weakling that was hiding out from all these marauding uh, you know, visitors that kept invading uh, Israel. God comes to him and says, I want you to take down the army. I'm going to take away all your soldiers. I'm going to give you 300 dudes. I'm going to give you a torch in one hand. I'm going to give you a trumpet in the other hand. And I'm just going to have you go out there and defeat the entire army. You know, Gideon, like, it took him a while to, to, to start believing that that was a possibility, right? Gideon d- didn't just say, like, well, man, just give me my torch. You know, I'm, I'm going to get out of here and get about that. That's not what he did. He said, God, you, you, I, man, I don't know what to do with this. I don't have any faith in this. I don't believe this. God kept saying, trust me, and I will show you the way. And he did. Remember Gideon, you know? We have to think about people that God has built their faith with very little to do it with as a way to grow it, right? What about, uh, what about David? You think David knew something about this? What about the, the time with the, the giant? Remember the slingshot? Remember the story that we went through? The, the dude, remember his name, Goliath? Remember when he got the slingshot and he got the five stones and he, and he, and he killed the giant? He killed the really just, uh, you know, probably the most powerful warrior in the land? I mean, what about that? What was God doing there? Why did God just remove all the resources? Because he doesn't work through resources? No, because he's the resource. That's why. It's not tools. It's trust. It's not tools. It's trust. What about Jesus? Let's talk about the ultimate story 
about tools, not trust. The greatest example of all. Look at the tools and weapons at the disposal of Jesus. At one point, Jesus says, there are legions of angels to save me. Anytime I just literally got to snap my finger. I don't know if he said snap his finger. I'm just keeping it modern. Anytime I snap my finger, I have legions of angels that are at my disposal. And yet, what did he do before the greatest battle in world history was waged on the cross? I thought maybe one of you would shout it out. He prayed to God. He prayed. He's in the garden. His legions of angels at his disposal. What does he do? He prays. He trusts God. And how did God save his son? With armies of angels? Is that how he did it? No. He raised him by the power of his mighty hand. And Jesus stood upright and walked out of the tomb. Only God can save us from death. And death is the real enemy. Death is the eternal enemy. Like Israel, our salvation is grounded in God's trustworthiness to do what he promised to do for those who trust him. It's flabbergasting and it's a counter and it hits against my natural inclination just like it hits against yours. As we close, here's three important truths, okay, that this psalm teaches us that I think need to be embedded in us, okay? And the first one is this. Prayer should never be your last option. If you find that it becomes your last option sometimes, that's okay. But it should never be your last option. You shouldn't just find yourself praying on the heels of the disaster and the conflict. Prayer should never be your last option. Preempt your life with prayer. I mean, you never walk out of the house without your clothes on, do you? Do you? Like nobody like nods their head or anything. I'm all scared right now. I mean, you want to think of prayer like that. Sorry, it's like the best example I could come up with. But that's how we want to think of prayer. We want to preempt our lives with prayer. Yeah, but what if something bad happens, Ronnie? Like, what if my house burned down last night? Do I pray? What happens after the disaster? Yeah. Pray, fool. Pray. Yeah. But listen, saturate your life in prayer so that when your house burns down, your faith doesn't burn down with it. That's what prayer does for us. When you pray, what you're doing is you're praying for both the seen and the unseen. You're praying like Israel was praying. Israel could see what it might take to claim victory from an enemy nation. What Israel couldn't see was that God had a more ultimate plan in mind. Years and years down the road, when his anointed son of the king, he would send to give them ultimate deliverance. So they were praying for both the seen and the unseen. They were praying for deliverance in the moment, and they were praying for deliverance eternally. That's what we're praying for. That's what we pray for. You're praying to God to act in ways that you can't see and you don't expect. Prayer is how God prepares us to trust his plan and to conform us to his strange way of doing things. And by strange, I mean it's only strange 
because we can't see what he can see. So it's strange to us, but it's not strange to him. So prayer should never be your last option because it's how God best prepares you for what he will do. It's how God prepares you for what he will do too. God defines what strength is. Like when we get here into verses 6 and 7. What David is laying out for us here is that God defines what strength is. And your default and my default is to not believe that. And I just don't want to believe that. I just don't want to believe that some concoction that I've come up with is not going to be as powerful as coming before the Lord and calling on his strength and his plan for my life, right? You think David knew what it was like to face an enemy who had a wee bit more military strength than Israel? I mean, it it talks about many times of them facing armies that just far, far just outnumbered them. I mean, he, he had a little, he had a little uh, experience with this in his life. And yet every time Israel trusted God, the weapons of their enemies proved to be no match for the might of God's right hand. Every time they collapsed and fell. Because true strength is trust. True strength is trust. Because I live in a house that can potentially burn down. Because I have legs that can potentially fold, all right? I drive a car that can potentially break. Scott's like praising God for that right now. But the fact is, is that I drive a car that can potentially break. I have friends who can potentially betray me. I have a job that can potentially be pulled from me. I have money that can potentially run out. I have skills that can potentially be of no use if something ever happens to me physically. All that stuff is real, right? So when all of your chariots and all of your horses collapse, will you be standing upright because your faith was not anchored in those things? I mean, will I? Will I be standing? Or will I be washed away in the ruin of those things that I thought were so safe and so secure? At some point, man, all of our go-tos will go, right? Your tried and true will become used and untrue. It happens with everything. Everything stops working. Everything stops working. But our tendency is to just go to a new version of it, right? A new version. It's like a software update, right? And this software, I just had to update my computer, right? Oh, the software update is so amazing. I have all these, future, you know, all these features. It's running so fast now. Like, why did I wait so long to update my phone and my computer? It won't be next year. Like, in a year, man, I'm going to open my computer. I'm like, man, it's so slow. And I got all these things popping up. And, you know, everything just keeps, like, just quitting on me. It's just a perpetual, perpetual collapse. Unless I keep updating and keep updating it. God defines what strength is. It's not our systems. It's him. God says, I am your strength. So prayer should never be your last option. God defines what strength is. It's himself. Three, finally, only God is worthy of absolute trust. Only God is worthy of absolute trust. Our our hearts are shaped. Listen, our hearts are shaped in such a way that, that they can't be neutral in this. They can't be neutral in this. 
Even when you've decided not to trust anyone, you know, that's it, man. I give up. You know, God has let me down. People have let me down. I can't trust anybody. I'm not going to trust anyone. What you're doing right there is you're, you're still trusting that not trusting anyone is your most trustworthy option. You can't not trust. You can't not place your trust in something. And what you put your trust in reveals what you believe about God. In fact, what you put your trust in reveals your opinion about God. It actually reveals what you really think about his character and who he is. It horrifies us to think that everything we construct in our life to trust in has the ability to collapse and fall. Look at what he says here in, in verse 8. They collapse and fall. You know, what that, you know what kind of image that puts in our mind? That there was something that they built that was already standing that collapsed and fell. It was already there. It was already a structure put together by them. Because something can't collapse until it's, it's built. It collapses and falls. But then he says, but we rise and we stand upright. You know what that says? That says God has to be responsible for us, for us to stand upright. God has to do the rising for us to actually have a foot to stand on. It means that God has to do the work. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing for us to consider. When we pray to trust God, it means we also have to stop trusting in other systems, don't we? So the minute you say, man, I'm going to devote my life to trusting God. Man, I want to to come before the Lord. I want to pray. I want God to mature me in this. I want to start trusting exclusively in Him. Well, you know what that means? That means you've got to stop trusting in all the things you've been trusting in. That means all the systems that you've put into place... You've got to look at those things as being always eternally on the verge of a major breakdown and meltdown. Now, whether you believe it or not, well, that's where faith comes in. Whether you believe it or not is the work that God is going to do in you to not be so reliant on faulty, faulty systems, right? How many of you guys have heard of Johnny Erickson Tata? Anybody out there have heard of Johnny? Yeah. So Johnny is a uh, quadriplegic, really godly woman. Um, she was involved in a, in a diving accident and just lost movement of every part of her body. Um, and she just kind of goes around now as a ministry, just talking to people, writing books, speaking to people, encouraging people. You know, one of the major themes of her life is, is I, I, I have no choice but to trust God now. Isn't that weird? Isn't that weird to even say that? I have no choice but to trust God now. Like, I'm, I'm forced to trust God now. I mean, is Johnny trusting in her wheelchair? Is she trusting in some medical breakthrough so that someday she'll be able to walk again? Are those things even worthy of her trust? I don't think so. She's actually been raised to new life in Christ. She, she actually already stands upright if we look at it in the way that David's laying it out for us here. She doesn't have the luxury to not trust God. She's been given a severe mercy instead. So here's the question as we finish. What has God allowed to collapse and fall in your life? Because unless you've just lived the most charming, silver-spooned existence in the world, and something has collapsed and fallen in your life, think right now about that. What is God allowed? What is God allowed to collapse and fall in your life?
count it a blessing. Count it a blessing. Because you want to be able to clearly see what the go-tos in your life have become. You want to know what your chariots and horses are. But God will mercifully collapse areas in your life to show they were never anything to fall back on. It's a merciful thing to look back in your life and go, everything got obliterated. Why? Well, because it was something that you were relying on that God says, that's unreliable. And I need you to turn into me. I need you to trust me. I need you to pray to me. Because at the end of the day, our go-tos give God no glory. They give him no glory when they become our idols. Your go-tos give God no glory when they steal your trust in God. Better yet, we want to do what Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 tells us. This famous passage that we just sort of say, we feel like it's a Chinese proverb. It feels all fortune cookie to us. We quote it at people when they're going through a hard time. We're dismissive with it. But this is truth to anchor us and to grow our faith. And it says this. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean on your understanding, on your own understanding. Does it say like, you know, every once in a while, man, you're going you're gonna to have a good premonition about something, so lean on it then. Do not lean on your own understanding. Do not, let me just add to it because this is what it's implying. Do not ever lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, everything you do, every time you get in the car, every time you go home, every time you open the door, every movement you make in every facet of your life, in all your ways is what it says. Everything you do, acknowledge him. That's what the people of Israel did before David went to war. They were acknowledging him in all of their ways. And then it says this. Here's the promise. He will make your paths straight. He will show you the way. He will show you himself. Because you know what happens when we put our trust in the Lord? An obscure vision becomes clear. That's faith. Faith is having a clear vision with the hope in God for both the seen and the unseen because he is trustworthy. Let's pray. God, this is so hard for us to think about the horses and the chariots in our lives, the things that we trust in, the things that collapse and fall, that just the countless examples we could all share about things in our life that have collapsed and, and fallen. So Lord, forgive us for that foolishness. Lord, give us a deep and abiding trust in you. Lord, let us be people that go before you with every, every situation in our lives, with, with prayer, coming before the throne of grace, knowing that, man, we are going to lay our requests before you. We're going to lay our concerns before you. We're going to confess our sins before you. Lord, you're going to hear us. And it's through those prayers that you're going to build our faith. And you're going to give us that strength that we need to operate 
out of a strength that has to come from you. Lord, thank you for the truth that you do hear our prayers because you hear the prayers of your son who you saved. And all of us that find our place with Christ, you hear our prayers too. So we can count on that. We can have the assurance of that. Lord, make us a praying and trusting people. Change our hearts this morning. Give us a renewed sense of trust and hope in you, Lord, as we go. We pray these things. In Jesus' name, we all said, amen.